their paths crossed like two hot wires. We are just about the friendliest folks you would ever want to meet. That's Bonnie. I'm sorry, I was looking for Maud. Everyone has the right to make an ass out of themselves. You can't let the world judge you too much. That woman, she took my car. This is Bonnie and Maud, the film podcast, with Xenia Yarosh and Eleanor Kagan. Hello, this is Bonnie and Maud. I am Eleanor Kagan. And I'm Xenia Yarosh. And we are bringing you part two of the Bonnie and Maud roving movie marathon. The concept of the marathon is that in the course of a weekend, Ksenia and I traveled all around Brooklyn to our friends' couches to watch eight movies. The first day we watched... Uh, we saw Loves the Blonde at my place, then hopped over to our friend Rachel's to see Drinking Buddies, then uh, saw Tempopo over some ramen with Anna and Joel, and finally I saw Empire Records for the first time at Tanya and Chris's house. Yes. And so now, day two, we have four more movies on four more couches. You can either go check the description for this episode to see what the movies are and watch along with us and then listen to our discussions, or you can leave yourself open to surprise. The films were a surprise to us as we went along, so you can be surprised with us if you like. And just a few orders of business before we get into it with our first movie. February 14th, that is Valentine's Day, if you are in New York, we are doing another edition of Pause the Tape, which is our storytelling show, along with Dana Rossi of the Soundtrack series, that presents stories of music and film. And as this is on Valentine's Day, there is a larger theme of crushes, sex scenes, breakups, love, anything having to do with that. So if you love music or movies, or crushes, or just want to hang out with us. uh, And you love sex scenes. (laughs) This is a free show uh, in Brooklyn, and we'd love to see you there. 7 p.m. at Videology, and we'll have some great storytellers there. Um, Also, March 1st, Ksenia and I will be guest judges for the Iron Mule comedy short film screening. I got that name wrong, (laughs) but it is called Iron Mule. It is hosted by our friend Jay Stern and it collects wonderful short comedy films and screens them, many for the first time. We will be there to judge them. So come to Symphony Space on the first Sunday of March, and we'll see you there. Um, We haven't seen these films before, so again, we'll be seeing these along with you. Now join us as we travel to the home of our friend Wendy Mays for our first film of day two of the marathon. I don't really have a blog or anything fun, but... (laughs) But you have a unicorn head on your wall. I think that is worth mentioning. I am part of the trivia team Boobcat Goldswat at Videology (laughs) every Tuesday, so there's that. (laughs) And we've got a poster of Miss 45 up here, so, like, we know we're in a... We know we're in good hands right now. Yes, exactly. Tell us why you chose a Doris Day movie for us. Uh, You must be a big fan. I am a huge Doris Day fan. Um, Doris Day kind of got me into loving movies. So when I was like in my early 20s, um, I worked at night. So during the day, I mainly watched like AMC and TCM. Uh, One time they were having a film preservation film festival, and it was all the Doris Day Rock Hudson movies. And I just absolutely fell in love. And I was like, that's what I'm going to do with my life. I'm going to go into film preservation, and I'm going to do this and that. Of course, that's not at all what ended up (laughs) happening in my life, but it got me on the, like, journey of, like, going to college, actually going to college, 
studying film a little bit in college and kind of just like loving cinema in general. So I always, I'm a huge fan of Doris Day for that reason and Pillow Talk is just, I think, quintessential. Is that what we're watching today? Yes, we're watching Pillow Talk. Yes! I've never seen it and I oh, wanted really? to so badly. Oh my God, it's so good. I just think it's the quintessential like Doris Day movie and especially Doris Day and Rock Hudson. And there's so many like, now that you know who Dor Doris Day is and now that you know who like Rock's, Rock Hudson is now, there's so many hilarious jokes that at the time nobody would have gotten. But now you're just like, that's amazing that that was written in and what ended up happening in life, you know? <laughs> I hope you'll, like, contextualize the movie for us a little bit when we discuss it. Okay. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Hello? Miss Morrow? My name is Brad Allen. Yes? Miss Morrow, why are you so fascinated with my personal affairs? I'm not fascinated, Mr. Allen. Revolted. You don't see me going down to the phone company complaining about your affairs. Oh, there must be a pillow talking boy for me. There must be a Oh my god. <laughs> I love it. Yay. I need to watch so much more Doris Day Rock Hudson. Right? Exactly. I was remembering how the movie that I grew up loving was Calamity Jane yeah. and I it never occurred to me that it was Doris Day when I was a kid, but she's so great in it. It's a fabulous movie. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. I have to say all the I don't know. Doris Day is just so wonderful and everything. I just love her so much. What are the other main Doris Rock Hudson movies? There is... She's breaking out the DVD yeah, box, the, the, the DVD box set. Rock Hudson, Doris Day, Pillow Talk. There was Lover Come Back and then Send Me No Flowers. Um, Lover Come Back is really good. Send Me No Flowers is probably the weakest of the three, but still really, really excellent. And what is it about this pairing? How did they get together and, like, you know, what what's sort of their backstory of these two stars together i think they just got paired together naturally through hollywood pairings like I, I don't think it was anything like they knew each other before these movies ever came out but i think that they've become just such a duo of gay iconousness that's not a real word but i'm gonna make it one uh, <laughs> iconography there you go thank you <laughs> That I just think that they're always so fabulous because she remained by his side like throughout everything. Like they were like became best of friends after these movies got made. And I think like she saw him through everything. And you can just you can feel the warmth between them and how much they actually like do love each other and how much they get along that it's just it's not really acting like you can just see them. I don't know. So they're they're. They're best friends, but they but that means that they can like play lovers really well. Yeah, exactly. I think so. Like, yeah. I don't know. That's really sweet. <laughs> I know. They're so cute together. I just love them so much. <laughs> it was sort of a big reveal for me to learn how much of a Doris Day fan you are <laughs> because like I mostly know you from being a fan of like zombie movies and sci-fi and like horror. 
not Doris Day. Yeah, like, I have to say, like, I do, I love my, like, trashy sci-fi horror movies, and then there's this other side of me that totally wants to be, like, a lounge singer, like, (laughs) professional lounge singer, so I love everything Doris Day, everything Peggy Lee, like, this classic lady of the 50s kind of thing. So I don't know how they kind of mesh together in some weird way, but it's, they do. (laughs) I don't know. It maybe it has a camp factor kind of thing because they're like both are so campy kind of thing. Yeah, this movie is such a product of its time. It's yeah. from 1959. Yeah, 59. And there were so many moments where we were like, oh, 1959 values, 1959 references, yes. uh, which actually made it really enjoyable loving this movie because it's a classic, but also like kind of laughing at it too mm-hmm. in many ways. These movies are like the start of the rom-coms that always portrayed a working woman. And it's like the struggles of a working woman. You know, she can't find love because she's working all the time or something like that. Whereas like, like I said, like I think most of these movies, like she's totally fine in this movie. Like she doesn't need it. Like she talks about liking being single. She's like, I go out with a whole bunch of different dudes and like, I eat at the best restaurants. Like, why should I want more than that? And she doesn't really need it. She's really self-sufficient. She's really good at her job as an interior decorator. Mm -hmm. She loves living alone. And I don't know, she like has, at the beginning of the movie, she has her shit together and continues to have her shit together throughout the whole movie. Yeah. Right? Oh, 100%. I mean, even when it's like payback scene, she still has her shit together where she's just like, yeah, sure, I'm very professional. I will do this. Dun, dun, dun. Your nightmare is about to happen in your apartment. Like, you know? And it's like literally the last five minutes of the movie are the only time you see her, like, did you say the word bride? No. And she becomes like a girl, what we're supposed to believe women really want. But up to that point, like, she's totally, you know, an independent woman, like, dancing like Beyonce, you know? Like, she's a single lady and she's loving it. I don't know. It all depends on how you read things, because mm-hmm. I wonder if a lot of women at the time saw her characters as being inspiring. Like, you see her being so confident and working so hard that it doesn't really matter that at the end she's like, yes, I forgive you, let's get married. And maybe the key thing is she doesn't actually like ever say, I have forgotten all the shitty things you've done up right. to this point. Um, yeah, you just like... It's just part of the formula of the films at the time that it has to end in this way. But most of the movie, like, she's in charge. She's in control. I, we were saying this during the movie that um, I would love, like, a top ten list of romantic movie cons. Like, long cons where one character kind of knows the identity of the other character and devises this elaborate scheme to try to trick them to fall in love with them. This movie has a very elaborate con that Rock Hudson's character is uh, playing out on Doris Day's character. And yeah, it's really crazy. Where like everybody that knows and loves her is like, oh, you know what you need to do to get back with her? Have her design your apartment. And everybody's okay with that. Like if that happened in real life, I would be livid if somebody, like, faked an accent, faked who they were, different name. Like, that is bonkers crazy. Like, (laughs) that is just eight times over Red Flagville. And, like, 
all for like no friend of mine would be like going to him later on and being like you know what you need to do buy some cat posters for her or something <laughs> you know like you need to go do this and that and burber derber like to get back in her good sense. like no they'd be like you're a dickwad like go away you even like what does she even know about the real him she like know anything except that he's like a player who sings the same exact song to, like, 18 different women. That's all she knows about him. She has no idea, like, what he does or anything like that. Wendy had a great observation that he takes this song that he's written and he just plugs in whatever woman he's flirting with's name into the lyrics. But Doris Day's character's name, Jan, what is it? Jan Morrow. Jan Morrow. Her name does not fit into that song. No. It's like Marie and like uh, Thelma, but Jan Morrow does not fit into that song. She is not a cookie cutter woman like the rest of those hussies are. (laughs) You are my inspiration, Eileen A perfect combination, Eileen Your eyes, your hair, are beyond compare I mean, every woman in the movie, like, looks at me instantly like, Oh, hello there. <laughs> like, you are just a tall drink of water and I'm gonna drink it. You know, like... Six foot six. That's right. This has that thing that's supposed to appeal to women, which is that you are the woman who is different and who will break the player of his playerism, right? right? Like you are so special that he is not going to want to fuck around with other women as soon as he meets you. You're going to throw him off his game. He's going to break up with his 18 other girlfriends because you are that special. Like that is the thing that I think appealed to a lot of women who watched this movie in the 50s and today i don't know that's like a very movie thing it's it's also like the whole trope of like fixing the broken bird you know there's always those tales too of like these men that are like i don't know like depressed or like crushed somehow and then the woman's like i'm gonna play nursemaid and you're gonna fall in love and we're gonna be happy i can make you happy you know, it's like the maid, you know, you wouldn't drink so much if you had a man to take care of. <laughs> One of many great lines in the movie. Hello. Miss Morrow, Brad Allen. Hello. Hello. Yes. I couldn't help overhearing part of your conversation. I'm sure you couldn't. And sharing a phone together, I feel a certain responsibility for you. Now, look, take my advice. Don't go out with that man. What are, you mentioned before we watched this, some of the, uh, like, jokes or throwaway lines that are, that have new significance and know how these actors and how these cultural norms have ended up. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you talk about a couple of those? Well, I think the main one is when, um, it's so hard to describe because it's Rock Hudson talking about Rock Hudson, you know, him calling her, um, his Brad Allen calling Doris Day's character and being like, oh, he didn't try to take advantage of you? Well, you know, some men just like their moms too much and like cooking and implying that he's gay. And so then there's this whole scene of him as the cowboy character lifting a pinky up, talking about how he wants a recipe, talking about his mother. And it's this whole joke about him 
acting kind of gayish when in real life Rock Hudson was gay. So those scenes have this extra kind of hilarity to them of just like, I can't even imagine Rock Hudson being in that scene being like, oh, okay, I need to act gay. Let me just, you know, like it's so bizarre to me. So I think there's those kind of things. And I just love like throughout the whole film, like the parallels that happen. I mean, not necessarily them off screen, you know, in their own lives, but like the men versus women, like the man being single versus the woman being single, the man being alone with a woman versus the woman being alone with a man, you know, like, I mean, she is almost raped like eight times in this movie. I know. <laughs> and, and the whole attitude towards it is just like, eh, this happens. It's a joke. It's a total joke. The, the funny, quote unquote, line is like, who's going to believe you? Which is like so devastating because, oh God. Um, and and when she's questioning if he's possibly gay, she says, you've been such a gentleman. But at one point, you know, like she basically it becomes, becomes yeah, she, she becomes worried that he's not actually attracted to her. Like you have to make some sort of move if you're a straight man right, to show exactly. me a sign. Right. We were saying like, what? He hasn't almost raped her? How do we know he's not gay? Exactly. I mean, she goes up to his hotel room and, you know, the Brad Allen Rock Hudson has told her, he's like, oh, he's going to take you up to his hotel room. He's going to take advantage of you. You'll find out what kind of man he is. And she goes up to his the cowboy Rock Hudson's thing and she's like shocked that he hasn't attacked her. He's like, when they're leaving, she's like, oh, you really did just bring me up here to look at Central Park? And he's like, well, what did you think was going to happen? And it's just, oh, I just assume you were going to attack me probably. <laughs> like, ravage me like most men would if I was alone in their hotel room with them. But that's so interesting that it's Rock Hudson's character. Well, it's Brad Allen basically, like, setting up these expectations of what men are supposed to be like. And then the, the con character, uh, Rex, not actually following through on those. And I wasn't sure if that was... Uh, Brad Allen like changing his mind at the last minute because he really likes Jan and wants to spend more time with her or if he's just fucking with her mind. I think what it is is him trying to set up the Rex character as being so awesome. Like he's not the typical man so she makes her fall in love with him even harder and he'd be able to get into her pants even easier. Like that's what I get out of it is that it's him trying to like boost up the image and put it Rex the cowboy on a higher pedestal than other men. Hello? Morning, Miss Mara. This is Rex. Oh, good morning, Rex. Ma'am, you done did a terrible thing to me. Oh? You made me glad I ain't in Texas. (laughs) Am I going to see you tonight? This is a weird movie. (laughs) (laughs) It's not what I expected. I really thought, I mean... It was a little more subversive and surprising in its plot uh, than I had anticipated. And I think it's a little bit weaker if you look even in the time period of like what was coming out and that. I think like The Apartment came out some kind of similar. So like, you know, this is like a soft sex implied kind of movie, whereas like there were movies being made at that time that were really explicit and like in this one the most explicit thing that you have is like he barges into her bedroom and like she has pajamas on and a blanket but then charges out of her apartment like and she's in her pajamas but it's not like a nighty it's like a shirt and pants Mm -hmm. yeah this movie does wind up being pretty um pretty 
PG, I guess, in its treatment of sex. Mm -hmm. There's so many great lines in this movie. There's so many great double entendres. My favorite line was, there are some men who don't end every sentence with a proposition. (laughs) Such a great line. So good. There's so many good lines. I think Tony Randall gets most of the really, really great lines, though. His character is just flawless. I mean, very flawed, but (laughs) it's such a great comedy. But he was so, he was such an interesting, they had a, he and Jan had such an interesting relationship Mm -hmm. because he was like her client who wants to marry her, but not really. They kind of have this like kind of teasing flirtation, but they wind up kind of being platonic friends in a way. And he is the first person who is on to uh, Brad Allen's con and tries to catch him in the lies. So Jan knows what's up. Um, and then he comforts her when she's crying. They have just like kind of a, almost like a brothery, sistery relationship. Except he wants to get in her pants a lot. Like, I mean, he is the epitome, and I hate this term more than life itself, but he is like friend zoned to the max. <laughs> like, I hate, hate that term, but that's exactly what, like, it's just him being like, I don't understand. You're supposed to want to marry me and you're supposed to want to have sex with me and you're supposed to do this. And she's like, but I don't like you. Like, I don't love you. Like, I love you as a friend, but I don't, we can, why can't we just be like friendly and have a platonic relationship? And he's like, no, no, no. I don't know how to do that with a woman. You need to marry me. I'm a millionaire. You know, <laughs> like, it's he's just friend zoned. Oh, I hate that word. <laughs> and now I understand why she didn't take the car he was trying to gift her in the beginning. Yeah, I thought it was a nice gift. <laughs> but who wouldn't take a car? <laughs> but now I realize it would have come with uh, some expectations. Exactly. Yeah. Where would one go in our in our Doris Day viewing from here? What's your what would be like the next recommendation? Um, I really enjoy if you enjoyed this, I would totally watch Lover Come Back. And I would even watch um, That Touch of Mink. It has Cary Grant in her. Mm-hmm. That one's really fabulous. And there's some amazing like will she or won't she kind of like bedroom scenes of just like she has panic attacks because she thinks he wants to sleep with her and like she's like oh my god it's hilarious but I would do those Uh, Calamity Jane you should totally rewatch cannot wait to revisit that movie and you also mentioned a really good memoir or biography yeah I would also watch Love Me or Leave Me it has her and James Cagney who James Cagney's and I are one of my huge favorites Obviously. Oh, wait, it's on that arm. Um, she pointed to a tattoo of Cagney on her inner <laughs> arm, wielding Wheel- a machine gun. But it has film, it's a film reel. Wielding a machine gun <laughs> with a film reel coming out of it. And popcorn, no. Popcorn bullets? Or those are bullets. I think they're just regular it's bullets. really awesome. <laughs> but yeah, Love Me or Leave Me is a really, really great, great one. And it parodies her life a little bit. Oh, Something I meant to mention earlier. This seems like an appropriate time to tell you guys about the uh, Tumblr that I discovered yesterday. GeneKelly'sButt.tumblr.com. What? That sounds amazing. I need to check that out, like, now. The man has some stems. Oh, yes. I love him, too. But what about, there was a book you mentioned. A book? Oh, her book? The biography? Yeah, you should totally read it. It's actually quite good. It's written in her words. It's her story. And it has all these, like, great... Um, segments in the outside. What is it called? Her Own Story? Doris Day, Her Own Story by A.E. Hotchner. Her story is just so, so not what you see on the screen. Was beaten by her first husband, second husband, 
lasted eight months. She was on her third husband by the time she did Pillow Talk. And that guy ended up taking all of her money. When, she di- when he died, she realized that she was broke because he had stolen everything from her. Um, she had a former manager before the guy that she married, who was her manager, who stalked her, full-on stalked her so that his company had to send him to New York because they were like, you're bonkers. Like, he was obsessed with her. Like, she would come home and, like, find him in, like, the hotel lobby trying to hide behind a newspaper because he was watching her so much. Like, bonkers. She's had a really crazy life. And I think now she's just like, you know what? It's me and the dogs. I'm going to hang out. And she owns a pet rescue now. She runs the Doris Day Animal League. Her and Tippy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Her and Tippy Hedron. Well, this was lovely. Thank you again. More than welcome. Thank you. Honestly, thank you for, for thinking of me for this. I'm very flattered. I was excited. <laughs> the Bonnie and Mata Roving Marathon continues. We're headed next to Ramel and Brock's home. You may remember Ramel from our Drop Dead Gorgeous episode. And we have no clue what she's showing us. We have three more movies. And, uh, and yeah. must be a boy. Must be a pillow. Must be a pillow talk boy for me. Oh, there must be a pillow talking boy for me. I was going to make a cheese log or a cheese ball. Oh, my God. Were you watching a Christmas movie? No. (laughs) Well, I made pimento instead because that's kind of like a catch-all 70s appetizer. Ooh. So this is Ramel. Hi. And Brock. Hello. Brock Mayen and Ramel Wood. So tell us what we're in for. Uh, we're going to watch, uh, the conversation. <gasps> mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> I know the music from that movie. Yes. <laughs> thanks to Ramel. Yeah. The interesting thing about this one is, uh, one, it's Francis Ford Coppola. It's 1974. And it's, I referred to him, baby Gene Hackman, which he's really, he's it's always like 42, <laughs> he's like 42, but you, he's almost unrecognizable because it's like the youngest you'll ever see Gene Hackman in a movie. And yet he's probably still like really old, right? Yeah. At heart. He's still in his he's early forties in the film. Yeah. He's in the twilight of a lot of normal people's maybe oh, no, no, middle age for a, you know, a normal human male. Yeah. Over the hill for an athlete. My mind, just because this is the way my mind works, I did like a portmanteau of like baby Jane Hackman. So now I'm picturing like Betty Davis, like plus Gene Hackman, like with garish makeup on. Like that's, I'm just going to let that go. (laughs) Uh, Cool. So we'll watch it and then we will uh, have a little chat afterwards. Well, I think the interesting thing about the conversation is um, I think it's really appropriate for someone like you because you're such a audiophile and there's so many scenes of him working with audio equipment and just like we keep hearing sound loops over and over and the music of it even though it's not like a musical film per se is so key to creating the mood. There's even repetition in the score, right? So there's two main... Um, pieces that David Shire did for the film and they kind of alternate depending on what is going on in the main character's life. There's one of just that's his personal stuff and there's one with his work. Like the repetitiveness of the score and the repetitiveness of that conversation snippet 
helps you understand what Harry's going through because he's obviously unable to escape it either to the point where it kind of drives him insane. Um, Brock always says, you know, you have to be a little bit crazy to work in editing because you're literally just hours and hours of just hearing other people's voices constantly. Like, you have to be a little crazy, as Eleanor can probably, (laughs) or anyone who uh, has a podcast or has something where they have to kind of listen and re-listen to a bunch of different things repeatedly. Um, Yeah. I don't edit, but I have seen a lot of crappy movies, and a, a hallmark of bad movies is they don't trust the audience at all, and they often replay scenes over and over the same conversations and this was the first time that I saw oh it is possible to do this in a masterful way where like it allows your brain to kind of like keep kind of chewing on on the same words pretend like I just told you a joke Kill us if you got the chance. It's really just about the importance about making connections with other people, regardless of, you know, uh, anything else. As we were watching, you know, uh, everybody called when, uh, uh, what's his face, uh, plants the, the pen on Harry. It's like, oh, of course, like that's coming back. That's a mic. That's He's a being mic. Recorded. He's being a mic. Yeah. It's, uh, and everybody called that, uh, what's her name, Meredith or Melanie? Uh, that she's she's there to steal the tapes and everything like that. The only person who doesn't see that is Harry. And the only reason why he doesn't see that is because he's by himself. He, there's nobody else looking out for him by design. He's, he's isolated himself from everybody. And I think it's interesting to watch the way that the male and female characters in the film conspire around him. I think we're so trained that whenever there's a victim in a film, it's obviously the pretty lady. Like this whole movie is kind of baiting you to set up the, the woman, the, the woman part of the conversation, like, you know, because it, it's, it's alluded to, it's like, oh, these two are having an affair and Harry is essentially following them just to get confirmation on this. Even when he's kind of chasing her in that dream sequence, it's like, oh, he's trying to save her. Like he's trying to reach out to her and tell her something about him in the hope that if he barters that information, like she'll trust him and then he can essentially protect her. Even when the bloody hand on the glass, you're like, oh, that's a woman's hand. Like she's being murdered. I think we're all so trained for that to happen. And I think that this was particularly refreshing because this came out in the early 70s. I thought kind of like a surprise twist in a, in a place that I wasn't expecting it. There's also hearing what you want to hear, no matter what your relationship is with everyone else. The linchpin of it for me was where he listens to the conversation one last time or he mulls it over. And suddenly the emphasis of that one sentence, he'd kill us if he had the chance. Suddenly the emphasis is totally in a different place of that part of that sentence. And he realizes it's not like a threat. He'll kill us if he has the chance. It's he'd kill us if he had the chance, suddenly it's a justification. And I think Harry had no, he did view them as victims and didn't feel the need to pay attention to where that emphasis was. And that was a magical moment. Yeah, exactly. It's like he doesn't want what happened in a previous job to happen again. I mean, for being someone who works in the surveillance industry, (laughs) he is more emotionally attached to his work than one would think 
safe. I mean, if he's the type of person who cares why people are hiring him to survey other people and like really worries about the outcome, he should maybe find a different profession because people are hiring him to do something potentially nefarious and he knows that. So, I mean, why not leave? He also strikes me as the kind of guy who doesn't get a lot of joy out of his work. Oh, see, I think the the opposite is true. I think he doesn't leave because he's really good at it. I mean, he is a master and he takes immense pleasure in his work. You know, the one of the only times that he starts to open up is when uh, Stan sets him up to talk about how they recorded the conversation. And you can tell by uh, that uh, what's-his-name is a hack because he's got no... He doesn't get anywhere close to what the actual solution is. He can't step away because that's... He doesn't have anything else in his life but that work. But I don't know. I think there's, like, three instances where you can almost see, like, little mini cries of help because he wants to get out of it. Like, somebody who plays the saxophone for pleasure outside of work, like... There's an artistic side of him that isn't necessarily all wires and tapping and science. Um, so, like, that to me seems like Wait, he's you're, reaching... You're saying there's no art to editing? <laughs> <laughs> no, I wouldn't say that. I would say um, there's there's no art to the nitty-gritty of wiring and figuring out the analytic ways in which to set up to get what he Brock needs. shakes his head. Yeah. yeah, I don't I don't think that's true. I mean, I think he's, he very much is an artist. He builds his own equipment. I mean, that's there. Yeah. There's an artistry to it. It's about making something that works incredibly well, you know, and then and there has to be an artistic angle to that. Well, yeah. OK, so that's OK. So that's not a good example. Mm-hmm. But what about his like little lady on the side like that to me? Like, I think he does ultimately want to forge a relationship, a meaningful relationship? Did you not get that? To me, that relationship, um, I read it as him sort of like pretending to be a real person, (laughs) pretending to have a real quote-unquote normal relationship when really he's like thinking about work the entire time. What about the lady in the green dress? If he was really so focused on work, like why would he open up to her even a smidge to get lady advice, essentially? (laughs) I, I did like that bit of the conversation a lot, um, especially the moment where he he asks her all these <laughs> hypothetical <laughs> questions that are all about him. Like, if you're a girl. I like that's how he opened up. If you're a girl, <laughs> he's talking to a woman, very clearly a woman. Well, if you were a girl and waited for someone, All right, and this third and last thing, my argument for Harry (laughs) um, wanting more out of life than surveillance, I guess. Um, His jacket. It's a raincoat, but there was, like, why that raincoat? Because there's, like, a weird transparency to it. Like, why not put him in a trench coat? Why not put him in a more appropriate looking raincoat like i think it encapsulates his his mental state because it's not you know it's not like a traditional you know trench coat that say like sam spade would wear or somebody from a film noir you know that's completely opaque it's somewhere in between and harry's in between in all of this he can hear the conversation he can hear everything that they're saying but he can't figure out what it all means and he's stuck in between and he can't really grapple with not knowing 
I think it's also frustrating though too for us as viewers to not really know anything about Harry, just as it's probably frustrating for everyone in his life to not know him or how he does his best jobs that he's apparently infamous for. There's a lot of really great shots of him behind frosted glass yeah. and behind warped glass where it kind of distorts his face into something really strange looking. Um, and the only little nuggets of information we get happen in this dream sequence where he tells two anecdotes from his childhood, but that's all we know and that maybe he's from Detroit. He once lived in New York and and those little nuggets that he does disclose, he doesn't do it in full consciousness. He does it in a dream sequence. And they're not the greatest examples of like a happy upbringing or a happy childhood. Um, so I don't know. Are all surveillance guys? Well, I mean, I think that's probably a topic for a different podcast. Uh, but uh, I would say one of the things that I really like about this movie, and I like, you know, I've, I guess I've seen it probably four or five times now, and I like it more every time that I see it. And I think one of the reasons is that, at least in terms of the, the really big ticket films nowadays, they're all basically origin stories. I mean, you know, superhero movies have taken over the box office. And that seems to be the most compelling kind of story to tell there. You know, so you're always looking for clues as to why this person became the person that it, you know, he or she became. What I really like about the conversation is that you don't really know anything about Harry. And you don't really learn all that much about Harry. And certainly the stuff that you do learn, I mean, maybe, maybe that, you know, traumatic experience of almost drowning because he was half paralyzed turned him into what he is today. But there's no, you can't really draw a direct line. And yet it's an utterly compelling movie because it forces you to fill in the blanks. Um, I know you keep calling the the director Cindy uh, Williams' husband, but I don't even know if that's ever made wholly explicit. I always got the the feeling that it's like a, a father-daughter kind of scenario. Right. Um, but I could be wrong about that. Wait, yeah, I got father-daughter too. Oh. I thought oh. she was, yeah, I, I definitely thought, thought she was Robert Duvall's daughter. <laughs> I thought it was a husband. I guess, I yeah. mean, we will never know. We will never know, which is actually kind of in a way fuels more interesting conversation about yeah. the conversation is the fact that we could, we're looking for tiny clues in this movie. There's no key. There's no internet answer i mean there's speculation but we can just sort of keep picking apart all the details and i do i do appreciate a movie that sort of rewards close watching you know i want it now that i know what happens i want to go back and watch again and look for clues there aren't any <laughs> <laughs> there aren't i did the same thing i was like there's nothing it's a, like one of the most straightforward mind fucks of a movie. I would say one thing that I never picked up before uh, until I watched this time is the very first shot. It's the mime going around Union Square. And that is almost 180 degrees from Harry because he's a man that the mime is somebody who does nothing but listen, doesn't speak at all and, and mimics the people, but he's trying to connect with these people. And the first shot is the mime or, well, not quite the first shot, but one of the first shots is the mime mimicking Harry, attempting to make a connection, trying to get Harry to notice him, uh, which is the opposite of what Harry is. And it's just like, it was one of those things where the first time it's just like, oh, geez, that's the whole movie there in one, <laughs> in one shot. The first time I saw it, I noticed the mime almost immediately. I was really compelled. I was like, that mime is going to blow it for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I loved the surveillance professionals convention i mean part of it is just being a nerd i was like 
losing it over the vintage audio equipment obviously at the time it was not vintage uh overall the audio equipment in this movie and uh the sort of joy of tinkering um when harry is listening to the conversation and he has it going on the three reel-to-reels and he's mixing it live and like playing with the knobs to try to you know bring up different parts of the conversation it was just really kind of like eye candy for me i just love old equipment uh you have a beautiful piece of old equipment in your house right next to me a moviola which is really cool so thank you so much for having us both of you uh i think you offered a lot of insight on this movie all right off to christina's for more movies (laughs) i'm gonna cut that We're at the home of Christina Cacioppo, who you may remember from the Francis Ha episode. And our journeys have taken us to Clinton Hill in Brooklyn, uh, where we are joined by Christina and her delightful cat, whose name is? Chance Boudreaux. Oh, he <laughs> knows we're him. talking about him. No, I'd never call him that, actually. Uh, I, I usually just call him Pickles, but his real given name, given name by me uh, is Chance Boudreaux named after Jean-Claude Van Damme and Hard Target. Because <laughs> it, basically when I got him, you know, the whole thing is, why, why are you called Chance? Because my mama took one. So I took a chance. Aww. I took a chance with him. That's beautiful. Um, so you were saying you've been keeping up on what we've been watching because we've been posting about it on the Twitters. And uh, what do you think? Um, well, I realized you weren't watching anything that was directed by a woman, so I, I kind of felt like, I don't know, that if you came to the end of it and it was like, wait, then that would just, that, that would end up being like a depressing revelation. Not to like, you know, rag on anyone's choices, because also my first choice was not directed by a woman, but <laughs> I w- since I wanted to show you something directed by a woman and I was kind of looking at what I had and also thinking about what I really like, I wasn't sure if either of you had seen The Heartbreak Kid directed by Elaine May. We are both shaking our heads no. But the thing that's interesting about that is it's directed by a woman, but it's very much like about a man and, and like his relationship with women. But it's one of my favorite movies. It's a comedy. It stars, it stars Charles Grodin and Jeannie Berlin, who's actually uh, Elaine May's daughter. It, it can be a very excruciating comedy <laughs> to watch. There's a lot of uh, really, uh, I don't know. It's, he's, he's a very difficult character, but I love this movie. I think it's great. Sybil Shepard's in it, too. Uh, was this later remade with Ben Stiller? It was. It was later remade with Ben Stiller. I just remember the really like screechy trailer with Ben Stiller, but I've never seen the original or any pieces of it. I haven't seen the remake, so I can't speak for it, but I'm sure that it's not good. <laughs> cool. So uh, what year is this movie from? 72. Your best. You'll soon be safe and sound. And you can rest. But till then. in the cauliflower. Isn't that the truth? <laughs> so I guess what's interesting is this is the first film directed by a woman that we're watching over the course of the marathon. And it's also like the worst male character 
I have seen in recent <laughs> film viewing. It's like he is a shell of a man who does not say a single sincere thing. He might not even have any sincere thoughts in his mind. He's awful. We should say the heartbreak kid is Charles Grodin. He plays Lenny. He gets married to Lila, and they go on their honeymoon. And by, like, I don't know, like, seven hours after the marriage, he's, like, over it. (laughs) He says, I tried to tell you in Virginia. So it's, like, really early on in the trip because I think they went from New York to Florida. Right, for their honeymoon. So he meets this other girl, Kelly, who I thought was in high school, but apparently she's in college, who's on vacation with her family there and falls in love with her and breaks it off with Lila and then follows Kelly's family to Minnesota where he relentlessly pursues her until her father gives in and then they get married. And then the movie ends with Charles Grodin sitting on the couch at his own wedding looking really bored and i see the entire thing happening again i see them going on their honeymoon and him being over it in an hour but like is that a continuation of the story we're seeing because we're women and (laughs) like it just seems so obvious that like of course we're all human and sometimes we don't eat egg salad in the most sexy way and sometimes we get sunburn and we have to put lotion all over ourselves like which were things that lila did yeah like is that something that we're seeing because we're in that mindset or is that like does the movie want you to see that as any audience member i think we're meant to sort of view lila from Lenny's, Charles Grodin's perspective i mean ksenia was saying this yesterday as we were watching drinking buddies that in Lots of movies where infidelity occurs when the protagonist is the one committing the infidelity were usually shown their original partner as being sort of deserved of the infidelity, like they were boring or they were naggy. And I think since we're kind of viewing the world through Grodin's eyes, like, yeah, Lila seems really annoying, and it is kind of gross when she has egg salad on her face. Well, I think what is important there also is that if he actually really did love her, those things wouldn't bother him. And, you know, the way that this is set up is essentially that he marries her because she won't have sex with him. So it's like once they finally are together and able to have sex, the spell is broken, and then he has to kind of finally look at her as a real person so that, I mean, think about it. You know that we've all been in that position where if somebody were to touch you, like the way she's touching him on his chest and it starts to annoy him, like if you really love someone like that, that would be like, you know, a nice affectionate feeling. But when somebody kind of starts getting under your skin, like that just reinforces that and so I've that scene also like you know when I watch that like it makes it makes me shudder you know because I understand that feeling so I I don't think that even though she does have these behaviors that make her annoying uh, I do think that it's more kind of his perspective I also think it's interesting that Elaine May is directing her own daughter Jeannie Berlin to be such an unattractive character which I think is kind of interesting too (laughs) I think that's pretty great also I mean we've talked about this before in this very episode that I find quote-unquote unlikable female characters to be really fascinating. But 
as it were, Lila was not that deep of a character. We don't really get to know her very well. We don't know anything about her. But, like, I feel like I want to know more about her than Kelly, who just, like, is this kind of cipher, this blonde girl who doesn't have much of an opinion or thought about anything. Like, she says things like, I can't listen and think at the same time. (laughs) Right, right. I mean, she's very blasé about everything. And the scene right before their wedding, um, it's her father and Lenny, and they're like, what do you want? What do you think I want? Kelly, I want her too. And like, what does Kelly want? She doesn't know what she wants. I don't know what she wants. I don't think she wants anything. Mm-hmm. She doesn't really seem to care about anything. But she's like a big, aloof flirt. Mm-hmm. That's, that's her thing. Yeah, it was sort of just a game for her. But this is why I think it's interesting and why I said to you when I was saying, okay, you know, we can watch this movie directed by a woman. But I also, I, Elaine May isn't particularly good with, with women. And like her, her movies usually are about men. And I do think that's interesting. Uh, but but I, I think that there is a failing in, in portraying women in this movie. You know, I still, I mean, I still love this movie. I think it's hilarious. Uh, it, it makes my skin crawl in like the best possible way, <laughs> but I do think that that she has kind of you know, you know that, that she she didn't really give either of the women any credit. So did you? What did you guys think? Did you like the movie? Like what? I, I'm curious. You know, <laughs> I I agree with you actually. I I really enjoyed it because I enjoyed laughing at him and how dumb he was. Um, and it you're right. It was kind of like like I felt icky for the situation, but it was like one of those train wreck things that you still enjoy watching i love you know what you just said it makes your skin crawl in the best way i agree like he is the worst but i don't think anyone watching this is necessarily going to disagree with us right like i don't i can't picture anyone but maybe the worst person out there being like man what a great guy like really determined (laughs) just totally goes for what he wants I don't think people would say he's a great guy. I think some men might think like these women are forcing him into these situations where it's like this naggy wife that he ha- he has to lie to her or she'll just nag him. He's such a hilariously bad liar though. Like those were those parts were so funny. <laughs> um yeah, I really liked the movie because I I just didn't know where it was taking us. Uh the, the breakup was probably the most painful scene of all. It just took so long, and I just wanted him to finish it. In the seafood restaurant. I think the, of the great scenes in movies in seafood re- food restaurants, it's this one. <laughs> and I say a little prayer for you from my best friend's wedding. If you can think of another seafood <laughs> restaurant movie scene that trumps either of those, please write and tell us. Um, the thing is, uh, as far as if anyone watching this and thinking that, you, you know, relating to him, I, I, I think if anyone relates to him, the, it, it's with an acknowledgement that it's a terrible, like it's a, a terrible way to be inside. I, I mean, there, there's definitely even parts of me that could, uh, that, that can relate to somebody being, 
you know, afraid of commitment and, and sort of always having a wandering eye and all of that. So I don't think that anyone would necessarily watch it or even men would watch it and be like, yeah, he has to deal with these shitty women. I think that it would be more like, oh, like more almost like cautionary tale, like where it's kind of like, oh, like if I am, you know, if, if I had flippant behavior and just married someone and, and without thinking it through or getting to know them or, you know, or. I, I think that it's it's something to more like look internally about rather than to be like, oh, that guy, he, you know, he's doing what he can. <laughs> I also think it's definitely a product of the time. I mean, this is from 1972 where, you know, he could, why does he keep getting married? <laughs> if he doesn't want to commit to things, he should just not get married. But I think, you know, in the culture then, like getting married was the logical conclusion to courtship. And I don't think that there is another option for him to think of, like, cohabitating or not. I don't know. I He's just an idiot. Well, this makes me really curious what the 2007 remake, the tagline of which is, Love Blows, starring <laughs> Ben Stiller and Malin Ackerman. Is that right? Yes. Um, I'm curious what the setup for that one is, because I feel such a such a big plot component of this is that the couple just doesn't they don't know each other that well before they get married and they take this road trip and they like start to well at least he starts paying attention to the way that she eats and takes care of herself and whatever else like I I just can't imagine that happening if you've been dating for a while I just can't imagine that the remake would even go as dark as this because like romantic comedies of the 2000s don't don't do that uh and it's not even like this could be a romantic comedy i think yeah i i've been curious i i mean i i've almost watched it i think i actually might because i have this like ben stiller four pack i wonder if it's (laughs) if it's on the ben stiller four pack because i got i got it for uh tropic thunder which i love um anyway i wonder also what you guys think you know because there there's there's obviously, uh, you know, a, a lot of like something very Jewish about this movie and and even this sort of like dream, the dream of the blonde, you know. So I, I don't know if you guys have thoughts about about that. And even that as sort of Lenny's aspiration uh, being kind of a weird twist. L- Elaine May's movies definitely always have have this, uh, you know, Jewish humor and then and like sometimes kind of like beneath the surface uh <laughs> themes like that. I totally picked up on that um, and agree with you. I mean, it's, it's really, really obvious in the second wedding because this first wedding was a Jewish wedding. He breaks the glass. There's a chuppah. There's everything. In the second wedding, it's like so Catholic. I, I don't see him being like religious or like believing in anything at all, even like politically or religiously. Um, he will just sort of like adopt whichever lifestyle the person who he's obsessing over adopts and so I can yeah I don't know I mean the fact that his wife is a brunette and he's pursuing this blonde was very very noticeable for me and it's just like I'm so sick of that trope but I I know it's not I mean it's also something that happens in real life like blonde women are like almost automatically considered more attractive and appealing and it's, I don't know, it's just so crazy. Mm-hmm. Well, I, you get the sense from him that he has known women like Lila his whole life. These kind of like typically like uh, New York liberal Jewish women. And you can definitely see that there is this like 
idolization of uh, this blonde goddess sort of thing. And even though she has like no personality whatsoever, he just projects everything he thinks she is onto her. And thus she be Kelly, uh, the blonde Gentile becomes that. Mm -hmm. I think also it really does end up being about this identity crisis for Lenny because, you know, and you get this often attributed to women that it's sort of like, you know, you latch yourself onto a man and then you don't know who you are. But he actually is doing that behavior of latching himself onto women. And I think what we're getting from the end is like he still actually doesn't really know who he is. Like he's talking to all these people and kind of morphing himself into, you know, tear, tear gas. There's what does he say? There's a lot of money in tear gas. <laughs> Like, just sort of, uh, yeah, doing the chameleon thing. Yeah, I believe Ben Franklin, when he says small government (laughs) is good government, that's like a snippet of wedding conversation. Yeah, and so I think then that does end up being about him, you know, still being lost, like still being a lost person. He he thinks that he he attaches himself to someone and that's going to be it or be set. And it's not like you even get the impression that he thinks he's going to be set because she has a rich family or anything like that. It's like he's focused on that, but then all of a sudden it's like, oh shit, like, who, who am I actually? You know, and I think that's what he's left with. I kind of liked that there was no conclusion and kind of like no judgment by the end. It's just like, well, mm-hmm. he's going to probably continue being unhappy because he doesn't know what he wants. He doesn't know who he is. He's in Minnesota. I, I just love also how, how like, the unpleasantness of being in Minnesota. Because he's, like, so determined. You know, it goes from Florida, like, beautiful sunshine. And he's like, I, I really want to settle in Minnesota. And it's, you know, all these news reports of, like, it's going to be negative 13 degrees. <laughs> and that, you know, tomorrow it might get up to 3 degrees. And it's sort of, like, setting up, the, the, you know, the setup for, like, what his life is going to be like. <laughs> Not like cold. Miami. Yeah. <laughs> cool. So just to recap uh, where we have been this uh, roving marathon as it almost comes to a close, we just watched The Heartbreak Kid with Christina Cacioppo. Uh, Before that, we watched The Conversation with Brock and Rommel. We watched Pillow Talk starring Doris Day and Rock Hudson at our pal Wendy May's house. We hope you've been following along and maybe watching these movies with us. And we have one more stop to go. We're headed to my house, which is the recording home of Bonnie and Maud. I have been excited to reveal the movie that I have picked for us, Ksenia. It's basically, I've been really excited to watch more movies about female friendship because it is a topic I love and girl gangs because they are also awesome. So we will be watching Set It Off starring Queen Latifah and Vivica A. Fox uh, from the mid nineties. And they're going to rob some banks I can't tell you how excited I am because I was actually thinking about this movie this past week. So, yes. <laughs> so, we suggest uh, you guys pop it in right now. And I'm picturing a VHS with the phrase pop it in, but you probably don't have that. Although somewhere this movie, Set It Off, exists in that form. Um, and then we will come back after we've watched it to discuss and to conclude the Bonnie and Madrova Marathon. So we just finished Set It Off, the final movie in the Bonnie and Maude roving movie marathon. Mm-hmm. And I, it's, it's a little bit of a bummer, I have to say. But we're going to unpack it a little bit. 
Yeah, I um, I was really excited about watching this film. I'm still really glad we saw it, but it was, uh, it was rough. I'm not saying that I didn't think the movie. I'm not saying that I didn't like the movie, but it just made me sad. I wonder if it's a bit of a the craft situation where you bring together this group of women, empower them very briefly and then punish them for it. So this movie follows um, four friends, Frankie, Cleo, TT, and Stoney, played by Vivica A. Fox, Queen Latifah, Jada Pinkett, and Kimberly Elise. They all sort of are screwed over by like the system, by society. The tagline for the film uh, is the only breaks you get are the ones you take. And I feel like that illustrates the film pretty well. It's just like the further the movie goes, the more, the worse their circumstances become. Like they're already in a pretty terrible situation where one of their brothers gets shot by accident. So yeah, so Stoney's brother gets shot by the cops, by a white cop specifically. T.T., has her son taken from her by Child Protective Services. Vivica Fox's character, Frankie, gets fired from her job at the bank because in the first scene it's held up and she like knows the bank robber from her neighborhood. And so they assume she's involved even though she isn't and they fire her. Um, And Queen Latifah is just like, has sort of just been run down her whole life, it seems. Um, And there's also, I mean, there's also kind of a weird like undercurrent of homophobia, I think, directed towards her. I mean, maybe in the resolution of the film, I think overall it shows her in a pretty positive light. Um, She has a really beautiful girlfriend who, oddly enough, doesn't have any lines throughout the film. She does not say a single word in the entire movie. She's like a very featured extra. But overall, Queen Latifah seems to be quite happy as a lesbian we don't see anyone explicitly attack her for being gay but at the end of the film she really seems to be punished in a very pointed way that makes me think that part of it has to do with the fact that she's a lesbian but so they decide to rob banks you know this movie is has been compared to Thelma and Louise, rightly, because it has sort of a similar ending in that they all die except Stoney, played by uh, Jada Pinkett Smith. Well, no, she's not Jada Pinkett Smith, then she's Jada Pinkett, mm-hmm. uh, played by Jada Pinkett. And uh, I'm like bummed about that. I'm bummed that, because of course we are rooting for them, you know? Of course, like they are the criminals in this movie, but we are still rooting for them because it's like justified because they've been sort of dicked over their whole lives Mm -hmm. and we want to see them take matters into their own hand and you know get their lives together and get what they deserve and even when they rob the bank um like the first time around they get twelve thousand dollars and on the news we hear that they stole ninety thousand dollars which is like clearly an insurance scam what did we like about this movie the friendship There is a really awesome scene where they're all smoking pot on the roof and they're just like laughing and like they have a bunch of inside jokes and like making fun of each other. It's so perfect. Definitely. Like the the girl gang aspect that initially drew me to watch this in the first place and the female friendship was, 
yeah, my favorite part about it too. They are very supportive of each other. They are all from the same place in LA. They're all from the same neighborhood. They're all from the same like socioeconomic class and circumstances and like completely get what the other person is going, what they're all going through. There's a lot of mutual like support. There was also a really great surprising haircut of distress towards the end. Second haircut of distress of the marathon. What was the first again? Oh, Empire Records. Um, Deb in Empire Records. Of course. Um, In this case, after she escapes to Mexico, Jada just chops off all her locks and she has this like super short kind of pixie and transformations uh, feel so important. I also liked seeing, you know, essentially this is a heist movie. It's like an action heist movie. And it was nice to see women and women of color at the center of a heist movie. Like women got to be Mm -hmm. the heist heroes, anti-heroes or what have you, because that's not very common. And, you know, at times, like, yes, it felt very reductive. Maybe if we saw more heist movies or more crime movies with women uh, as the anti-heroes, maybe, you know, the field would seem a little bit more varied and it wouldn't be quite so tokeny to see women in this role. And overall, they they got to be badasses, at least for a little while. Like, they looked like they were in control. Even like the scene where Queen Latifah is shot down, at least momentarily, we get to see her in this like very cool kind of gangster manner. I didn't appreciate that the last shot of her is like her face where she's crying. (laughs) But at least for a time, we got to see them as like powerful and bad. Yeah. I mean, you've seen Thelma and Louise, right? Mm-hmm. Both movies are about taking risks because it's like, we have nothing else to lose, so let's take a chance and whatever happens, happens. What else did we like about this movie? I, I found myself laughing a lot despite how many tragic uh, components that were in the plot. Like, there's one scene where they're just like imitating Godfather. <laughs> <laughs> that was super silly. But I, I kind of liked it. I mean, they like definitely committed to having super terrible Italian accents and were around a comically large conference table. Mm-hmm. It was goofy. It was goofy, but it was one of those things that like is believable that a group of female friends will be totally stupid together. You know, I, I didn't mind that scene, even though it felt like really out of place. Um, but whatever, I kind of enjoyed it. It just, like, further illustrated their friendship and what else? Sex scene was okay. (laughs) A lot of oils and, like, (laughs) pearls rubbed on oily backs. (laughs) Yeah, there were two sex scenes. There was a lesbian sex scene, very brief, and a straight sex scene. Both sort of the thing that you would get, I think, with a lot of movies from this era where suddenly it would just like morph into like, this is the sex having time. (laughs) And it's like, I was worried that, especially with the gay sex scene, that it was there to be like titillating to the male audience, Mm -hmm. which it was was so male gazy. It wasn't like, this is a believable moment between these two women in love. the, the straight sex scene was just very over the top as well. <laughs> Ksenia, you mentioned the oils, but, you know, 
whatever, 90s movies. Got En Vogue playing. I kind of can't complain. Blair Underwood also plays the love interest of Stoney. Uh, yeah, I guess I appreciated that he was sort of a background character. I, I liked him enough, but like the main traits I remember about him is he wore a lot of vests. He was very handsome. Uh, he took Jada to a dress store to give her a makeover. <laughs> um, Everything you want in a boyfriend. Yeah, it was a little bit of pillow talk, possibly. <laughs> I mean, the love story was definitely an afterthought. It was one of those, like, you work in a bank. I'm a bank robber. Is this going to work out? So, I don't know. Well, oh, and the final, final scene is uh, Jada driving away in this, like, red Jeep in the mountains of Mexico. And it's like, I don't know that I've talked about it on the podcast, but I think, like, scenes of women driving are so powerful in movies because it, like just shows the strength of being able to move wherever you need to on your own. And um, it just, I I did like the final shot a lot. Yeah, it was really cool. It was just, it was a lot like the final shot of uh, Cruel Intentions. And Terminator. Yeah. (laughs) Three totally related movies. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, I guess... I would recommend this movie, but it's one of those where it's like, I love uh, act two the best. Act one, there's like a lot of backstory set up and I understand that it, it needs to go through all of this so they have motive to rob the banks. Act two, once they are finally robbing the banks and reveling in it, is great. And I loved yeah. that. And then of course, in act three, everything falls apart. So it's, you know, it's one of these movies where there were parts of it that were really... Yeah, empowering and and fun to watch and um but you know, all in all I don't think it was perfect by a long shot. Possibly more Queen Latifah movies. Definitely more Queen Latifah movies. Well, I guess this wraps up the Bonnie <laughs> and Maud Roving Movie Marathon. We should thank everybody who hosted us and was so kind to open their homes to us. Rachel Kowal, Christina Cacioppo, Wendy Mays. Ramel Wood, Brock Mayen, Joel Shaughnessy, Anna White, Tanya Davis, Chris Smith, and you. I wonder if we should do this again sometime. We want to know what you think about this. Did you have fun following along? <laughs> Did you follow along? Did you watch all eight movies? We want to know. So email us at bonnieandmaud at gmail.com or reach out to us on Facebook at facebook.com slash bonnieandmaud. Twitter, our handle is bonnieandmaud. We're on Instagram now where you're hearing this a little... Uh, after we actually recorded this, but we were posting photos of everything that we uh, came across this weekend uh, for the marathon. Wouldn't you know it? Our handle is also Bonnie and Maud. I think I would actually recommend that other people try this with their friends. It's really fun to watch a bunch of movies in a day. You start putting things together, even if they're totally unrelated, (laughs) and you just like... I don't know, your brain gets warped in a in a fun way. I found myself saying, you know, pillow talk and the conversation make a great double feature because both deal with phones so much, which is a ridiculous thing to say. <laughs> and the thing about like moving from place to place is it really, it makes it better. You're not sitting on one couch and you get to see how other people experience films. Um, so yeah, plan one with your friends. <laughs> 
So do you think we'll do another marathon sometime? Absolutely. All right. I'm Eleanor Kagan. And I'm Ksenia Yarush. For Bonnie and Maude, thanks for listening. Thank you.